Welcome to the Equipping Podcast. My name is Karen, and I'm here with my co-host, Nathan. What's up? How's it going? I'm doing so good. I'm doing even better than you. Mm. Ask me why. Because it's a contest. (laughs) I'm winning. (laughs) Uh, Why are you doing better than me? Because we are here for part three with Jerry Root. Mm, Love that guy. It's going to be a good day. We're back this week with Dr. Jerry Root from Wheaton College. He's the director of evangelism initiatives at the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism at Wheaton College. And we're super excited. We've really had a great conversation with him for the last couple of weeks. And so we're excited about having him here again with us. One of the things that he's known for that he travels and speaks on a lot is uh, C.S. Lewis. So if you don't know who C.S. Lewis is, then, well, Jerry, we'll tell you about him. <laughs> thought you were going to say, turn off this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I would, <laughs> if you don't know who C.S. Lewis is, then you get problems. Um, but uh, no, he's, uh, uh, Lewis uh, died in 1963. Is that right? Same day President Kennedy was That's assassinated right. yeah. and the same day Aldous Huxley, who wrote Brave New World, died as well. Crazy. They all died on that day. Yeah. There was a professor at Boston College, um, Peter Kraft is his name, yeah. and he wrote a book called Between Heaven and Hell, and he had the three of them show up at this at this room waiting for their eternal processing, and they have a dialogue in that mm. room. Very creative. Interesting, um, yeah. A book. Yeah. yeah. But Jerry, you've been studying Lewis for f- like four decades, right? 48 years. Almost five, dang. Hard, yeah. hard, hard to believe. Yeah. yeah. So Jerry's been studying C.S. Lewis as, almost as long as Lewis was alive. <laughs> Definitely longer than I've been alive. Yeah, right. So anyway, uh, if we're going to talk about C.S. Lewis and uh, and apologetics, then uh, Jerry's the right guy to be talking to. So Jerry, that was a long introduction, but welcome to the podcast again. You know, you might be wrong there because uh, practice doesn't make perfect. It only makes permanent. So I might be the right guy if I've studied Lewis well, but if I've studied him badly, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you off the rails in the wrong direction. Well, well, you know what, Jerry? I've read a, enough of Lewis. I'm not as widely read as you are, but I've read enough of Lewis and I've had enough conversations with you that I'm confident that you've studied well. We got the right guy. <laughs> no one worries. So let's just let's just uh, go go from there. Well, I always leave the possibility it's open. Fair. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's fair. I'll uh, let that stand. But we've been talking the past couple of weeks on evangelism and and anytime you talk about evangelism, it's almost like uh, this apologetics really is a, kind of a subcategory of evangelism because as you begin to share the gospel with people, regardless of where you are, um, probably more often than not in that dialogue, unless you're just mowing them over with you know your evangelism methodology, probably in that dialogue, people are going to start asking questions and some of them are going to be really good questions. And, uh, and so Lewis was a uh, unique individual in that he engaged with things thoughtfully, but wasn't, if I can just be blunt about it, he just wasn't weird about it. He had a sense about him where he was, like you said on the last podcast, he was good at connecting the message to the deep longings that people have in their, in their hearts. And so, one, how do you think he got there, and what do you think made him so effective at doing that? He was very aware of his own longings in his heart. His autobiography, Surprised by Joy, he writes about almost being hounded 
by the sense of longing that there was something missing in his life and the quest to try and find the object of this longing. He used words like joy or sweet desire, longing. There's a German word, Sehnsucht, that he used to speak of this longing and so on. And so his life was a quest, I think, because of that particular sensitivity to his own longing, he was able to speak to the longing that sometimes percolates in all of our hearts. But as far as the intellectual side, Lewis, I think, was not afraid to ask hard questions. Mm. Um, the faith that he was taught in his childhood was, was pretty simplistic, and it was unresponsive to the complexities of life as he actually faced them. And consequently, it proved not robust enough to help him, and so he turned away from it. Later, he would write, I want God, not my idea of God. Mm, good. I want my neighbor, not my idea of my neighbor. Mm. I want myself, not my idea of myself. And the idea of God that was presented to him as a child by, I'm sure, well-meaning people, but it just was not, it was not robust. It was not as fair-minded as it should have been for this curious little guy. So Lewis wasn't afraid of questions. Matter of fact, he wasn't afraid of questions even as he became a Christian. He wrote in his, uh, in his sermon, The Weight of Glory, if our religion is objective, then we must never avert our eyes from those elements in it which seem puzzling or repellent. For it's precisely in the puzzling or repellent where we learn what we do not yet know and need desperately to know. Yeah. I think eventually he would become secure enough in the love of Christ that he could incline towards any question. Because he knew on the other side of asking it, there would come some fresh answer, some new understanding that would enliven and, and make his faith more robust. And I think that that kind of intellectual curiosity is a good thing. I would even say, if you have no doubts about your faith, whatever, you're delusional because yeah. you think you've achieved omniscience. All of us should have questions. I, I, I'll tell you, how, I read through the Bible every year, at least once, and, and I just finished my 47th read this summer. And beyond that, I've, I've read the New Testament. I'm just finishing my 33rd read through the New Testament besides the full read through the Bible. Every time I read it, I see something I never saw before. Every time. And every time I read it, I see some question I don't know how to answer. And so I'll take the question as it percolates to the surface, and I kind of put it in the pending tray like a scientist would a developing experiment. Another time or two through the scriptures, I see the answer to that question. I go, wow, this is, I see it. I, I get how it works. Mm -hmm. So if somebody comes up to me and says, I'm not interested in scripture, it's just full of contradictions and stuff like that. And I go, you know what? I, I, I've sailed my boat a little further out to sea than you have. And I've seen these kinds of things too, but I've also seen every one of them I've ever encountered eventually be resolved. Mm -hmm. So I'm not, I'm not taking too seriously your cursory read through scripture and then you're making this challenge. Yeah, right. It is a, a profound book. Mm -hmm. It is so robust in its approach to life and what it says about what it is to be humans made in the image of God, but very broken and very fallen. Lewis gives us that in his curiosity in his quest for answers, in his ability to find answers and then articulate them, not as, as the end of the, all discussion, 
but at least moving us towards the right trail. So if we want to go deeper with this, we know we're on the right trail to go deeper. And consequently, because of that also, he, he leads us to um, a sense of wonder and awe in the discovery of these answers. And it's a wonder and awe that always breaks forth into worship. Mm. So consequently, if I'm talking to somebody about faith and some question comes up, I'm not trying to confront that person. I want to get shoulder to shoulder with them mm. and look out at the answer and describe it as best I can so that that person notices what it is. If I move away, hopefully they'll still be interested and fascinated by the whole thing, but moving down the proper track. And I think Lewis does that even for his readers and so on. And and I think that the whole methodology of this is very helpful in sharing the gospel with other people. I mean, some of the characteristics even that I was writing down about Lewis that I've just taken notice of is exactly what you're describing, just like strikingly honest, like a very stripped down version of honest, where he, like you said, wasn't afraid to ask hard questions. And then on the other side of that was just a, a confidence in who God was, uh, that no matter what question he asked, that his his God would be able to like understand that he was asking and that he would have an answer. And so I love applying that to evangelism, that we can be honest, we can uh, be open with people and explain our own doubts and explain our own troubles, and yet um, we can have confidence in who our God is. Yeah, it's funny. When I interview people to join our apologetics team, one of the primary questions I ask them is, uh, tell me about a season or time in your life where you really wrestled with your faith, you know? And um, the people who respond in ways like, oh, well, I've never really done that. You know, I'm like, liar. Uh, <laughs> you, you know, you're, you're either too uh, young in the faith to yeah. have gotten there or, or there's just a superficial. You lived on the dark there. side of the moon. Yeah, totally. And, and I think that because in my own life, I mean, I remember uh, walking through a very dark season uh, in my life and Lewis was really helpful. This is when I read um, A Grief Observed. And uh, the the like brutal honesty yeah. in yeah. that book, which which followed, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Jerry, but followed the death of his wife, is exactly. just raw. And and I was raw in that season of my life. And I remember I the the thing that I always remember is is uh, just he's he's writing almost a confession, yeah, where he's like you know, and in this pain I turn to God. And what I found was a door that was shut and locked and double locked. And that's how yeah. I felt at the time. And here's this guy that's this champion of Christianity and, and he's empathizing with yeah. me. I'm, I'm feeling the same thing. And yet in that pain, um, in the, the darkness, there is where God meets you. Yeah. It's not something where you have to clean yourself up or because you're not, you can't, it's impossible. Um, but, but he meets you there. And I feel like that really just resonates even still today, obviously, yeah. because I don't feel like we're that honest. Mm -hmm. We're just not, we're afraid, we're, we're worried about people's perceptions of us. We want to be strong or appear like we have it together. Yeah. And yet that, that moment where we are okay being vulnerable is going to be the one where people relate to us the most. Mm -hmm. That's what Paul says too. He says, um, um, God gave me a thorn in the flesh and I prayed three times, Lord, pull the thorn. Mm. And basically God says to him, you know what, Paul, I don't pull every thorn. 
I, I, I let you learn my power through your weakness and my grace is sufficient for you. Mm-hmm. And I think sometimes there's, there's the unpulled door. There's the, the, the difficulty that, that God lets us endure to create in us in some senses, especially if we're engaged in evangelism in the work of, the, of, of transmitting the gospel of Christ who died on the cross for us. He allows us to enter into the sufferings of the cross. Mm-hmm. He allows us to enter into his suffering for the world. And and I think I think this is also important. There there are people that I have prayed for in the past, and prayed for for years and years before they finally came to faith. And what I discovered is that maybe they eventually did come to faith. Why did God make it last so long? Why did it take so long? And I think that He lets us enter into His heart for the world as we wait for um, uh, the world to come to him. His heart is a broken heart. His heart is the heart that endures pain in its redemptive processes as he woos us to himself. Mm-hmm. And, and, and Lewis is able to connect with that in, mm-hmm. in many of his books. Yeah. And I think there's an honesty about it. And as you mentioned, maybe a, a transparency and vulnerability comes mm-hmm. through that as well. Mm-hmm. So, Jerry, what do you think made Lewis? I mean, obviously, his transparency and vulnerability. He was he he strikes me as someone who was very real and didn't have a whole lot of patience for, uh, for ba- lack of better word, BS. <laughs> he would <laughs> um, agree, probably. Yeah, I mean, at like Bible study, Bible study. Yeah, 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 yeah that's it. Yeah, yeah, Bible study. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he just didn't have a lot of patience for that, and and uh, and I think that's at least that that sense that I get from his writing is is really endearing to me. But but what do you think made him such an effective apologist? Let me say something first. He, he does put up a lot of garbage. He does. You read his letters. Yeah. He answered every letter that people uh, sent him. I used to own a letter of Lewis's, and he said that I answer all my mail. Mm. I don't know how he did it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm 2,500 emails behind right now. <laughs> I don't know how, just, how just he did it. Just a few. And the thing is, when there was a woman who wrote to him. He wrote her back. She wrote him again. He wrote her back. And thus began 13 years of correspondence with a woman he never met. Mm. And and she was difficult. And, and I... I I had a friend who once told me, light attracts moths. If you hope you're emitting light for Jesus and you're not attracting any moths, then you need to reassess whether or not you're emitting his light. Lewis attracted moths and he took time with them. He said to somebody, I don't think I'm doing a lick of good for this woman that he had been writing to for 13 years. And yet he still wrote to her because she mattered. So this idea that people matter for Lewis I think makes his work connectable. Mm. The fact that he was a great writer and he was clear, he started out as a poet. Uh, His poetry never achieved great success. It's not bad poetry, but it caused him to become a better prose writer because he learned the economy of words. Uh, It was Mark Twain who said, I didn't have time to write you a short letter, so I wrote you a long one. The short letter, every word has to count for more. The poetry, every word has to count for more. And consequently, he learned this economy of words. He learned a fluency of style and and so on. That was very good. I think he was also not only good in logic and reason, but he was also good in depiction. 
sometimes we can't get our minds around things till we can get our hearts around them. Mm-hmm. And he could he could tell a story um, and, and and give a metaphor or an analogy that would help us say, oh, I get that. Mm-hmm. I understand what you're saying. That was another reason why he could connect. So in some senses, the artist in him made it possible for others to awaken in mm-hmm. their grasp. And and I do think he had a, a love and concern for people. Mm-hmm. But he also couldn't break free of his his own issues. You know, his the questions he had, I think he gives us good answers, but he gives those answers to us open-ended, not as if he solved the problem yeah, for right. all time. Yep. Um, he, he, he gives us uh, sure words without last words. Mm. Um, and consequently, he gives them with such humility that there's more that could be known about this. He's also deeply in touch with the deep longings of the heart. And I think some of the deep longings he identifies as the pilgrim longing. We feel like there's maybe some purpose for our life somewhere and we're trying to find that purpose and we're on this pilgrimage. And Lewis writes specifically about how you won't find your purpose till you find it in God. Mm. He writes about the deep longings of the heart and he says basically God is the object of that longing. He writes about the issues of longing to be loved. Um, I, I, I don't think uh, there's a person who's lived honest life, who doesn't long for some sort of love and unconditional love. Human love is great as far as it goes. But my guess is I've probably never been loved perfectly by another human being. And the reason why I suspect that is because I'm pretty sure I've never loved another person perfectly. And yet, have you ever felt lonely before? What does that tell you about your nature? If you felt thirsty, it tells you you need drink. If you felt hungry, it tells you you need food. If you felt lonely, it tells you that you're a sociological being. You need others. But have you ever felt lonely in a crowd or lonely living under the same roof with other people you know and care for and you know they know and care for you? Well, that loneliness doesn't prove anything. It might strongly suggest you were made for some relationship, no mere human relationship can ever satisfy. And besides the pilgrim longing and the longing for for joy, the object of our deepest longing, and besides the the longing for relationship, Lewis also writes about the longing to have the broken things in us fixed. Who who's lived on a life that fails to recognize we're not very life skilled? We made horrible messes of things in our life to one degree or another, some more so than others. But nevertheless, every one of us, if we're honest, we we have lived with our regrets. I met a man once. He said, I've lived my life and I have no regrets. I go, man, you came from the dark side of the moon. (laughs) How, How could a person live their life and have no regrets I would like to ask the people around them what they thought mm-hmm. about that. I met a man one time who thought you could achieve sinless perfection. Guy was such a legalist. And one time I heard him announce that he hadn't sinned in 10 years. He was standing next to his wife and she looked miserable. Because mm-hmm. if you think you haven't sinned in 10 years and somebody around you, you have conflict with that person, well, clearly they're the ones that's wrong. Mm-hmm. And And I just thought to myself, that's insufferable. We, we, we are broken people. Lewis is aware of that brokenness, and he writes out of that honesty, but he writes with hope, great hope, because he points people to the one who could meet us at the place of our brokenness, mm. and, he, and he points with confidence towards Jesus. It's great.
really good. So as I've read Lewis's works, like you said a few weeks ago, there's a uh, he opens more than wardrobe doors. And uh, I know for me, uh, you far greater than I have begun to chase down some of these other works that he references in his writings. And so what do you think him being so widely read, how do you think that influenced or shaped the man that he became and also the effectiveness of his apologetic? What do you think those books and his reading habits did to him? There was a book that came out years ago by Jerry Sitzer. He was a a church historian and theologian at Whitworth College in Spokane. And and the book was called Water from a Deep Well. Mm. And Sitzer was looking at the wisdom of the medieval Christian mystics um, who wrote about real life as we actually live it and so on. Water from a deep well. I think you can look at Lewis and you can see he was drawing his water from deep wells. He, he read widely and deeply. He wrote one book called English Literature in the 16th Century, Excluding Drama. He wrote it for the Oxford History of English Literature. It took him 18 years from start to finish to write it. He called it his Oh Hell volume, Oxford History, English Literature. It's about, it's about 700 pages. To write it, He read every book written in English in the 16th century. Mm -hmm. He read every book translated into English in the original language it was written, Old French, Italian, Latin, and in its translation so he could make a judgment about it that was honest and fair-minded. It's a prodigious work of scholarship. There's only one of the 73 books, titles that bear his name. He, he, He read the classics. He knew Plato. He knew Aristotle. He knew the Greek playwrights. He knew the early church fathers. He was familiar with Augustine and Anselm and Athanasius. He was familiar with Thomas Aquinas. He knew Dante and Milton and Chaucer and Shakespeare and George Herbert and the metaphysical poets, John Donne, Thomas Traherne. He knew Jane Austen. He knew George Eliot. He knew these writers. And consequently, he sees across the board where the deep human struggles are. He sees across the board where the deep human longing is. Mm -hmm. And he could speak about it being utterly informed. And he knew varieties of ways to express it because he had immersed himself in varieties of expressions of those things. Mm -hmm. And it's a maybe we don't have the time to read like he read. But we could serve sure benefit. He could become an almost surrogate liberal arts education for us. I think that Facebook and Twitter and social media in general is going to be the indictment to show us at the end of the world that we did actually have time to read all of these things. Well, that's interesting. Uh, the guy, Ken Taylor, who put out, put out the Living Bible, he was a friend of ours here in, in Wheaton. And he said you could read through the entire Bible at a speaking rate in 80 hours. Mm-hmm. That means if you read an hour a day, you could read it four times in a year and have 45 days left over. If you read it a half hour a day, you could read it twice in a year and have 45 days left over. If you read 15 minutes a day, you could read it once in a year and have 45 days left over. It takes 13 minutes a day at a speaking rate to read through the Bible once in a year. Mm-hmm. That's less than the commercial time of one hour of television. Yeah. We're, 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 we're bereft by choice. Yeah. But nevertheless, Lewis said, most of my books are evangelistic. 
What did he mean by that? And and we know about his apologetic books that are clearly evangelistic. He's trying to address the arguments that people have against Christianity. He's trying to do X and Y and Z, so on. But but we also know in his fiction, he said he realized any amount of theology can now be smuggled into people's minds under the guise of fiction. Mm. We know that in his Narnia Chronicles, he could depict robust understanding of of uh, the Christian faith, and uh, not allegory, but in 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 what he called uh, supposals and 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 analogies and so on. But he also said, we don't need more books by Christians about Christianity. We need more books by Christians on other subjects with their Christianity latent. Mm-hmm. And Lewis's books are that. They're, 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 they're mediated through a Christian worldview. And consequently, because of that also, we find that we gain a broader understanding of what this faith is about. And we can transmit that broader understanding as we meet people and talk about the gospel. G.K. Chesterton said, I didn't become a Christian because one or two things seemed to prove it. I became a Christian because everything seemed to indicate its proof. Whereas C.S. Lewis once wrote, I believe in Christianity as I believe the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Mm. So Lewis gives us this opportunity to enter into a robust understanding of Christianity. That When we go talk to a particular person in a particular place, we've got a wealth of material to draw on as we speak to them and seek to answer their questions and love them to Jesus. Mm, so good. Man, if that doesn't inspire you to go pick up a book, I don't know what you're listening to. <laughs> yeah, and, and pick up, uh, uh, Jerry, where, where was it that Lewis said, uh, or he, he wrote an essay, right, on, uh, on the reading of old books? It's actually the introduction to a translation of Athanasius, Incarnation of the Word of God. God. And a friend of his had done the translation, so he wrote the introduction, but it was later republished in the book God in the Dock, yeah. which is a bunch of essays in, in apologetics. Mm. And it's called On the Reading of Old Books. Yeah. Yeah, but just to be able to see, I mean, uh, and that's the beauty of writing, um, is over human history, I mean, uh, we. We, uh, we can see, like he was able to, if you read widely enough, then you can see across the horizon of all of these people. I love, I love the imagery that you use there to be able to connect the dots and, and, and see where the human longings are. And, and I think what you find is the remarkable similarity of all of them, that, that there's a, uh, there really is a consistent theme throughout regardless of what genre of literature you're reading or what time period it's from. Well, he also said that in the age of machines, the newest is the best. And consequently, we have developed a false understanding of our world. And we think that that which is most contemporary is that which matters. Mm. And as a result, we often forget the very things that uh, were written two generations ago. Yeah. I met with Mortimer Adler a couple times, the great philosopher at University of Chicago. And he was talking to me about um, Descartes and Locke and um, Barclay and, and Hume and Kant. And he was saying they were ignorant men. And I said, how can you say that these were brilliant men? And he says, I'm not saying they were unintelligent. Listen to me, he said. I'm saying they were ignorant. He said, I think they were intelligent, but they were uninformed about the writings that were put down two, three generations before themselves. Mm -hmm. 
they had an arrogance about history and they thought that what was on the cutting edge was that which was most important. Yeah. And he said, consequently, they were bereft of all the great books. And he said the mistakes they made were often answered in some of the great books of the past. But because they were ignorant of it, they made the mistakes themselves. Totally. And I'll give you an example of this. Lewis said the most important book of medieval literature, if you want to understand it, is the Bible, hands down. But the second most important is Boethius's The Consolation of Philosophy. He said it was the most influential book on medieval literature and he said, up till 200 years ago, a person wasn't considered educated if they didn't know that book. I'd never heard of the book till I heard Lewis refer to it in his book, The Discarded Image, where he gives a 16-page discussion of that book. So I went and picked up Boethius. It was written in 524 AD. I'd say it was one of the 10 best books I've ever read. Mm -hmm. So many people today struggle with the issue of foreknowledge and free will. If God foreknows what we're going to do before we get there, do we really have free will when we get there? Boethius answered it in book five of the Consolation with such simplicity that we say, how could I have ever been so stupid to have had a problem with this? And Lewis makes it clear it's because we've anthropomorphized God. We projected on God human qualities, and then we get mad at him for being human when he's not. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I, I want, I'm just going to leave that hanging out there for people yep. so they'll go read Boethius and benefit <laughs> from it, or at least pick up Lewis as a discarded image and read his 16 pages on Boethius so they can have a good answer for the person who says, how is there freedom if God foreknows what we're going to do before we get there? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's, a, that's an intriguing one to leave people with. Yeah, totally. I, I, man, I think what I'm once again reminded of in this conversation is so often uh, we love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and strength, but not necessarily our minds. Mm. Lewis is known for saying God is not any fonder of intellectual laziness than he is any other kind of laziness. I think the thing that I'm getting from you right now and I'm reminded of is how when we do apply uh, our minds to the love of knowledge and of of truth and we seek it um, a faith seeking understanding then we the deeper we go into that the the more we encounter god and the more the the broader we can see and experience these these deep longings that are uh, that are met only by God. And I think that what that does in us is it's used by the Holy Spirit to transform us into the type of people who, when other journeyers encounter us, we're able to engage with them on substantive issues, address questions that they deeply wrestle with, and have a solid response. Not a, uh, not a final word, as you said, but a substantive one. That's going to help them along. And that's what apologetics is, um, is, is being able to do that. And you just can't, you can't just show up with the Christian cliche and the last little bite-sized Twitter statement that you saw to just throw at people like a one-size-fits-all kind of thing. And so, um, man, this is really encouraging just to hear how Lewis applied himself and how we also can apply ourselves to, to not just love the Lord with our heart, soul, and strength, but also with our minds. Well, the person who's reading though books in order to get answers to questions for other people, or they're reading books to use those books as clubs to hit other people mm. over, they've missed it completely. Yeah, totally. They should be reading the books because 
they're 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 in love with this world. They're in love with the wonder of this world where God has displayed His glory, and so they're reading their books to to grow as humans, mm-hmm. to flourish as humans. Uh, they're reading books because they want to learn and 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 they want to learn about the glory of God. So then, if I'm growing in that way, when time comes and somebody has a question, I'm drawing out of that rich well, right? Um, the resources. Of, of that growing relationship with God. So, I think that's the, the main reason. The other thing I want to say, too, about the secular society, you said loving God with our whole mind and, and, and engaging our mind. This, this culture that we live in is flush with informal fallacies, mm-hmm. non-sequiturs, yeah. red herrings, hypothesis contrary to fact, straw man arguments, ad, ad hominems, hominem. and so on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and, the whole culture is full of this stuff. Mm-hmm. You watch one night of nightly news, right or left, it makes no difference. There is so much uh, irrationality on the news. Go get a book on informal fallacies, learn them well, and learn to spot them when they occur in other people on, on television. Just spend a, a, a night, a week, looking at the informal fallacies on the news. As you learn about that, one, your evangelism will get better because you'll you'll flush these things out of your own your own thinking and speaking. Number two, if you see somebody else engaging in the informal fallacy, don't beat them up, but say, you know, let me let me take apart here something that you just said, and and you you dissect the informal fallacy and show them the incorrect thinking of their of their position in order to point out to them something that's more robust, more sensical, and actually more enjoyable and hopeful. Mm. And I think we can do that too. And I think Lewis was good at that. He avoided the informal fallacies. Yeah. And and there was a reasonableness to him. But it was a reasonableness that grew out of his own love of thinking well. I think our culture just has so many barriers to that, mm. where we believe that our access to information equals intelligence yeah yeah and like that is so mm-hmm. flawed yeah. just because i can google the answer uh, isn't is not the same as deeply knowing it inside and so i think we have to have to move away from this idea that oh i can figure it out if i ever hit the moment of need and and recognize like hey we are learners we are uh, curious and creative and that's how the lord has made us and to engage in those activities such as reading books like that's what the Lord has created us for, and it's good. Yeah, there's a big difference between knowledge and information. Oh, yeah. So, Well, I think at the end of the day, and ultimately, and we say this quite a bit around here, is um, we can always have, you know, solid answers and have thought through things and, and uh, can help people along. But ultimately, the greatest apologetic is not a solid argument that uh, creates defeaters for all of our opponents, but ultimately, the, the greatest apologetic is love. And so uh, I think that that's been one of the common things throughout the past three weeks of just speaking with you is um, how the love of God undergirds and runs through all of it. Well, it's interesting. There was a guy named William Luther White who wrote a book on Lewis as an apologist. It was one of the early books written about Lewis. And he goes through Lewis's apologetic arguments and he looks at them in a reasonable way. And then he concludes a book much the way that you just spoke that the greatest apologist is the one who walks in shoes. In other words, the greatest apologist of Lewis was his character, his demeanor, 
the way he treated people and loved them and, and, and so on. And I think that's true. We want to fire on all the cylinders. Uh, use your reason. Use your choices. Use the emotion. Use story. Use the arts. You use everything. Fire on a lot of cylinders, but make sure that the reality is at some level evident in your own life and demeanor and the way you treat people. Mm-hmm. If somehow you get in a discussion with somebody about the gospel and it ends in a shouting match, you didn't do well. Mm-hmm. Go back and ask forgiveness because you can recover. The grace of God is the grace of, of uh, second chances. God's in the recycle business. And he can even recycle our mistakes for his glory. Jerry, thanks for being with us over the last three weeks. It's been super encouraging. And I'm sure all of our listeners also appreciate just your time to sit in with us and and equip us. So God bless you, man, in your ministry. I'm in your debt. I love you guys, and I love what you're doing there at Watermark. (laughs) Thank you so much, Jerry. We hope you enjoyed this conversation on evangelism with Dr. Jerry Root. If you like what you've heard, then subscribe and for sure tell your friends about it. And if you have any questions or comments for us, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at equippingpodcast at watermark.org. And we hope you tune in next time. Bye. Peace. Peace.